You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the Room Now faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Hi, it's Dr. Janet Pope here reporting at Room Now, and you can follow me on Twitter at Janet Burdope. I'd like to talk about RA conundrums, most of which were presented today at the ACR 2021 convergence meeting. So I think you could also subphrase this as choose your own adventure because I'm going to talk about biomarkers, using drugs clinically in a better way, and some safety as well. So um, one of the topics was uh, precision medicine, and this was abstract 1252 by Jeff Curtis and his group looking at Coravitas or Corona data. And the question here was, can a biomarker, which is called a molecular signature response classifier, and they called that MSRC, it's a 23 biomarker, can it detect non-response of patients with RA starting a TNF inhibitor. And by non-response, it was not achieving an ACR50. So it's quite a big high bar outcome. And they looked over the next year. And they found that in general, if you didn't have this level as being high, so you don't have this molecular signature response classifier that's high, then you would get um, about 29% don't get an ACR50, or you would say, okay, 71% do, which is actually pretty good in clinical care. If you had a medium high uh, value, it's not quite 50-50, but it's getting to that where 42% um, don't respond. So in other words, 58% respond. So it's attenuated. And then if you were in the very highest group with this molecular signature response classifier being quite high, you would only get an ACR 50 of 40%. So I don't think it's ready for prime time yet because I don't know when to use it. I don't know if it changes when we repeat it. And I certainly don't know the cost. The other thing is it's not 100% specific or sensitive, but wouldn't it be great when we have so many choices that we would get the right drug into the right patient at the right time? So I think it's something to follow and uh, keep watching over time. Then looking on how should we use our drugs. So there was an anecdotal study because it's not randomized, it's following patients over time from the large multi-country databases of the combined data called the jackpot trial, Jack for Jack inhibitors, not Jack as in Jack Cush. Anyway, in the jackpot trial, they had a really good clinically relevant question. It was uh, abstract 1442. The question was, after a Jack inhibitor, are you doing worse, same or better if you go Jack to Jack? or if you go to Jack to other mechanism of action. So Jack to a biological, which could be a TNF or other bio DMARDs. And the idea was to look and what they found was that the Jack inhibitor patients were worse off. They had late, later line of therapy when they had their Jack to begin with. Then when these patients switched, it wasn't randomized. It looked interestingly that going Jack to Jack or Jack to other mechanism of action had the same benefit and the same durability of response. And one little clinical pearl they found was that 
if you had a side effect on the first jack that caused you to stop the drug, it was more apt to happen on the second jack as well. We do need an RCT. I think we could have a wonderful pragmatic trial, but those results surprised me. And if you adjust for some of the bad characteristics of the patients who were initially on JACs, you might even find that uh, JAK to JAK does still just as well, but this was an unadjusted analysis. There were also a couple other studies to shout out. So um, uh, abstract 1438 looked at steroid increase in VA patients with rheumatoid arthritis, over 23,000 RA patients. And if you had glucocorticoids prescribed within the last 30 days, you had a 15% increase in MACE. And obviously there was a dose response found, and this is one of many studies showing that. So. Um, is it chicken or egg? Is it the worst patients get glucocorticoids or those flaring who will have higher hypercoagulability? And we know DOS is related to um, arterial thromboembolic disease as well as to VTE. So chicken, egg, or both, but I think the bottom line is avoid glucocorticoids when you can. And that would be following the more recent ACR uh, guidelines for rheumatoid arthritis. Then two other quick uh, things to talk about, a drug we use all the time, methotrexate. Um, abstract 1444 looked at the side effects from the patient's perspective, and one in three had nausea or significant GI side effects. There were oral ulcers and alopecia, alopecia especially complained of in women patients, not men. And um, we don't know what to do with that, but I think if you prime a patient uh, for side effects, they might get them. On the other hand, you have to tell them about side effects to some degree and help work through it. Then the only other uh, abstract that I think would be really interesting for us is looking at ultra low dose rituximab. So in abstract 1443, it was an RCT. Um, once you've had your normal dosing of rituximab in rheumatoid arthritis, so your gram, one gram IV times two, or anywhere after having that, patients were randomized to a gram, 500 milligrams or 200 milligrams. And interestingly, 200 milligrams IV Q6 monthly, it was used a little bit more uh, frequently than maybe Q6.4 uh, monthly with the higher doses and did just about as well. I think two take homes from this, cost savings, and maybe we have less B cell depletion, which will maybe give better outcomes if our patients get COVID. So I think there's a lot of clinical pearls in RA treatment today. Uh, follow us at Room Now, and thank you and enjoy the meeting. This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. I have two distinguished guests today. It's my colleague, Dr. Una McCreese from UT Southwestern and Dr. Ray Young from the University of Michigan. They have contributed so much in the field of geriatric rheumatology. Thank you so much for being my guest today. You're welcome. It's our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Dr. Young, now you're a unicorn. Um, you're quadruple boarded. Geriatrics, hospital and palliative care, internal medicine, rheumatology. So can you share with us what led you into this area of research? Yes. Um, my first life, my first love has always been rheumatology. And so um, earlier on, my interest was in drug-induced lupus. And that's how, how, what I did my research in. But as I look at autoimmune diseases, I obviously recognize there are gender differences, sex differences between this. And it was somewhat of a natural extension when I start also asking about the other demographic, uh, the effect of the other de uh, demographic uh, changes 
<clears throat> which is how age may affect the rheumatic diseases. So the fun things for me as a junior faculty then was that it was like a kid in candy store. There was so little data there. And so, you know, you start looking into, you realize there's no data and you start getting into it. And then you publish a few papers and suddenly you're the kind of the national expert because no one else knows anything about it either. <clears throat> so in a way, it's somewhat attractive. And, and ultimately I was thinking about which direction my research, my career should go. Uh, I wasn't sure. And, and so I, I asked some national mentors and I asked them, you know, for advice as I was facing different leadership opportunities and things like that. And at the end, what made me decide to do what I am doing is a question that someone asked me and said, Ray, this is not how big the endowment, how much, how prestigious the program is, how much money they can give you. But she just asked, Ray, <clears throat> where do you think you can do the most good? So at that point, I decided that um, I want to combine my passion, uh, my interest in rheumatology, and yet understanding that with the aging population, there's so much opportunity for me to contribute. So that's kind of how I ended up doing that. And when I became division chief for geriatric rheumatology uh, and, and palliative care, um, I, I actually changed the name of the division to from geriatric to geriatric and palliative care. And I had recently also had an opportunity to um, to be the interim <coughs> rheumatology <coughs> chief here at the University of Michigan for, for a couple of years. And so I've really been able to try to kind of walk both both fields. And we're just talking with Una just now about palliative care and the landscape and how this is still so new to rheumatology. And I think that's another area that, for example, I can think where um, rheumatology can benefit from that kind of interdisciplinary approach to patient care. No, and it's it's such an important topic and an important field. Um, and I, you know, I haven't ever been involved in it until I met Una. And Una, so what excited you about this field? What one, what made you want to champion this cause? Well, really, it was Ray, right? Um, I met Ray <laughs> very young, and I had the good fortune along the way to just be lucky to come across wonderful mentors who happened to be geriatricians. And so I, it was really a passion. I always loved the immune system. I knew I wanted to do rheumatology, but I rotated when I was in Seattle at Puget Sound um, in the long-term care facility where Dr. Hazard, who is the grandfather of geriatrics, we read Hazard's geriatrics textbook. Um, he was my attending. And he basically said, Una, you can walk the line and you could live those two worlds and make a great difference by being a rheumatologist and being geriatricized and learning the aging principles and really approaching your rheumatology patients through the lens of a geriatrician. So, so you know, like a lot of viewers, I'm in the same boat. There's such a delicate balance between not doing enough for our older patients and then doing too much and causing harm. I'm always worried about causing harm because you know the Hippocratic Oath, first of all, do no harm. So how would you suggest we approach this balance, particularly in our aging population? And I'm gonna throw this out for both of you. Una, I'll let you go first. How's that, ladies first? <laughs> Wonderful, I'll start. I think it all starts with assessment like with any other patient, with younger patients, but recognizing that in our older adults, 
there may be additional contributors that are really geriatrics aging specific. So keeping in mind multi-complexity, keeping in mind polypharmacy, how adding one more medication may harm or help our patient and taking, you know, backing up a little and asking what matters most to the patient, you know, so that we can align our management with their goals and priorities. And I know we've talked a lot about this throughout the ECR 2021. We're really pushing the five M's of aging and geriatrics. And um, again, just to review multi-complexity, what matters most, mentation, mobility, medications, and kind of keeping all of those in mind as we address the question of, is it too much or too little? I think that if we align it with what the patient wants, that question becomes easier. Yeah, I think uh, rheumatologists are in the ideal position, frankly, to look after the complex older adults. In so many ways, we are drawn to the specialty in some way. It's because of, we like the complexity of our patients and of the diseases that we look after and uh, many facets. And, and I think um, we already very much into mobility and kind of issues because of the patients that, that, that we look after. So in many ways, I think we're in a good place to start where we, you know, where we want to be. Um, I think some of the challenges are, you know, the, the workforce shortage issues that ACR identified for a long time and with the aging population, this didn't get worse. And so the challenge is how we as rheumatologists, um, what, what can we do and how, are we gonna, how do we change our practice to some extent so that we can still deal with the, you know, the civil tsunami that is already here. And at the same time, that, that challenges of, of our practices and thinking about innovative way to improve the outcome of rheumatology patients at the same time, constraining cost of healthcare that is continuing to rise. Uh, so all these issues, I think we're in a good place to start attacking them, but it will take a concerted effort for many people and frankly for uh, some outside forces to, to help us change uh, the way that we practice uh, uh, rheumatology. Ray, if you look at it, though, from a societal level and just a bigger picture, there also are workforce shortages in geriatrics. And so that's been always my passion. How can we um, motivate and educate our own colleagues within rheumatology to understand some core geriatrics principles? We don't need to have a, a, a geriatrics board certification, but what are the core principles we need to be applying in clinical setting with older adults? So Una, you mentioned uh, Bill Hassett. So he coined the term gerontologize, the subspecialist. And the idea is that we are not making everyone to be a geriatrician, that is not the goal. But as you said, basically to impart and, and help them understand those principles. There's a, a term in geriatrics um, that David Rubin from UCLA had, had used, um, called it, um, NPLI, so which stands for nationally prominent, locally irrelevant. So, you know, we, <laughs> the, the world of aging people, the population loves and, and wanted more and, and understand the challenges that the aging population has. And yet locally, oftentimes we still find that 
um, people not willing to put resources necessary or to focus on this because you want to eat the lunch in front of you rather than thinking about, you know, again, not whether Puck, you know, you know, great rheumatologist, uh, Wayne Grassy said, right, you, you skate to where the puck uh, is going to be, not where the puck is. And so sometimes, though, that we, we don't think about it that way. We just let things naturally happen just because we're so busy. So, well, and I uh, think also, like in our society, like um, older people were kind of swept behind, like behind a rug or behind a door. People don't really value um, our seniors. And in being mortal by Dr. Atul Gawan, I mean, that was the one thing that he really distinguished was that, you know, like in certain cultures, and I know in my own culture, like, you know, we revered our seniors, but then there are certain cultures where it's like, I'm not going to deal with this issue. And I, I wonder whether that mentality also plays into this. I, I think it does very much. Um, <clears throat> there are, and it appears in many different ways. So we had this session on ageism, you know, um, and to try to think, help us think about um, how people viewed an older person and what barriers, because the way that we look at the person, we make certain assumptions. Um, and probably one of the most important principles to think about is that older adults is a very heterogeneous population. And so we just don't think about someone who's, you know, if I ask you, what is your image? When I talk about on older adults, I don't use the word elderly and don't use the word elderly, but, but you know, what, what, what is your image? Is it someone, you know, on a walking stick, on a wheelchair? Or is it someone like our, our patient subject yesterday who is looking for skydiving and, and, and all these other things? So um, understanding the heterogeneity um, in their mind, in their body, in the functional status and the aspiration and their differences in, in what they want, I think will help us uh, as a specialty uh, focusing on some of these principles, I think, is all we need. I think rheumatologists are very worried, and I, I heard some of that during this meeting too. It's almost a little bit of frustration and, and not quite anger, but frustration at least, because you know you want to do more. At the same time, you say, I'm so crazy busy, you know, how am I going to be able to do that? So, so hopefully our group, one of my goals is to, and I'll go, I think, to help the general rheumatologists uh, think about how in the practice you, you can incorporate some of these principles and not wreck your practice and doesn't mean you have to become a uh, geriatrician or anything like that. And Una, you mentioned the, the, the example uh, about uh, Stephanie Sudensky, who uh, is a rheumatologist by training and then went into geriatrics as well. And he's one of the giants in, in geriatrics now. And she mentioned about, you know, um, we just have to do one of the functional measurements. Don't worry about which one, you know, that's fine. And I have a slightly different analogy that I use, which is, is thinking about, you know, BLS. So, you know, we all have to do our basic lives. Well, many of us do. Those of us who work for the VA, you have to renew every, every couple of years. And there were some of the principles that if you just do some, you're always going to be better off for that patients, you know, for, for, you know, for life support. So we will only do, do more and we can only help our patients the way that we, we, we think about things. Very good points. Um, so when I, I'm going to turn your attention next because 
I want to pick your brain about this. So I have this one 78 year old woman and she is going blind. She lives by herself and she has nobody to lean on. She asked me if I could help her end her life. I froze. I, I was like horrified. I mean, with your background, should we be addressing end of life issues? I mean, I, you know, we're here to help people and to, to continue life. But when, when people ask us to end a life, I'm, I, I just don't know what to do. I would also pause with that question and ask a little more about, you know, what is going on and what do you mean exactly? Um, and the question you, you bring up, Catherine, is, is valid, you know, is this my role? And I think our role is a partner in care with our patients. We get to know them and follow them through every stage of their life and try to meet them where they're at. And she's communicating some really, uh, I'm assuming they're clear desires. Um, but how do and she's do not this? depressed? Yeah, she's not depressed. And she may not have delirium. She may not have dementia. This may be a very clear desire. And I'm very, I've never encountered this situation, Catherine. I'm curious how Ray would handle this in a clinical situation when yeah. you have no social yeah. connections with the patient. Yeah. I have had um, a, a few patients who had been very frank. And in some ways, the first thing I thought, I'm flattered that you are willing to talk about such intimate topics with me. And that um, I, one of the things I always say is that I'm going to be here for you. I just don't know, it's just to reassure them you're going to be there for them. And I will use languages such as for me, you know, just so because they're not imminently dying necessarily, but they just want to know when I approach that step. And it is something that many people, even if they don't say out loud, they are concerned. How would that happen? And how will I go through that stage? We think that I'm a rheumatologist. Why would you ask me about that at the same time? To me, again, it's a wonderful thing that they, you have that relationship with them, that they're willing to talk to you about some of this. So acknowledging their, their feelings and their thoughts, um, but also understand what is it that you're most worried about? Are you worried about that? you will be in pain so much when you're dying? Or what is it that you're most, what is it that motivates you to want to do that? Because you're worried that you, you will be a burden to your family. That will be another kind of common reasons why people, so, um, and we just, uh, towards the end of our last session just now, I was, I, I gave a, a website a link to, to people about CAPC, which is an organization that, uh, provide a lot of training uh, for uh, everyone, really all levels of healthcare about end of life discussions, because we are not trained to do that. We have never been trained to do that. And yet we have the most difficult patients. You know, we, we look after some of the most difficult patients in the world and most complicated. And a lot of them will die from their disease. And yet we have never been trained um, to how to talk to them about it. Um, so there, is, there are resources there. And because the reality is a lot of rheumatologists, again, don't have a ton of time. So lean on your palliative care physician. And sometimes there are barriers for that because people say, I don't want to see a palliative care, you know, just because of the name or hospice and that kind of things. 
But again, if they say I'm worried about how that process is going to be, then there are clinics that we call symptom management clinic, or no, or no clinic for advanced diseases. So to help patients be more comfortable uh, as they approach that part of their their lives, uh, once you get get uh, connected with some of your uh, your palliative care dog, you find them amazing. From my experience, that they are the most cheerful people. They deal with the hardest patients, and you know, oftentimes they they are the funnest people to be around, and and so on. Right. Um, and Ray, do you yeah. have any suggestions? I think that sometimes partnering with palliative care, we think um, you know they work with a lot of oncology and cancer patients, not necessarily end stage rheumatic disease patients, do you have any suggestions on how we in rheumatology can partner and approach and educate our palliative care colleagues? Yeah. Palliative care is interesting in that there are tens of specialties, specialties that can go into fellowship training. For rheumatologists, you have to be internist before you can become a rheumatologist. For palliative care, there are 10 different specialties. So it's very diverse. In the country, looking at the landscape, there are programs that are based in oncology. There are programs in geriatrics. There are programs based in uh, even hospitalist program. So they're different depending on your institution than the resources at your location. Um, that's where, where you want to, to hold on to. It's a growing specialty. You know, the um, match rate is better than say rheumatologists. You know, for rheumatologist specialty, a lot of people are interested as a growing interest in this specialty. Um, but like rheumatology, like geriatrician, you know, there aren't enough of them. And uh, they are very interested in training the trainers and, and to the different level of palliative care that people provide, the top level when you use IV ketamine and all this other stuff, to the level where they train geriatricians, other people who look after older folks or, or other people who, who, you know, oncologists and so on. So you have different level that, that there's a structure for, for training. But it does depend very much on your local institution. The VA system has a the package case under geriatrics by the the, the way that is structured, uh, but that has to be really depend on your own local uh, programs. You know, I could listen to you all night. I think like you know this would be a great NPR interview because <laughs> it's just so fascinating. Um, but I know that that my videographer is going to cut us off in a little bit. So I just wanted to wrap up by asking each of you: Is there like something that you want our viewers to know? Is there some call of action that you would like for them to do? You've given us so much to work with so far. Go on, Una. I would say um, to really try to get to know the older patient sitting in front of you. I think that goes to your comment, Catherine, about how our society, you know, views aging individuals, you know, what's happening in our society that we don't really wanna take care of the whole person and know who our patient is and all their multimorbidities and all of that together, their, their social context, their, you know, the, the dementia, the depression. We don't just own the rheumatoid arthritis. We want to manage and, and partner with the entire patient. And so that really means getting to know the patient in front of you and not to be, um, I guess, nervous about assessing something in an older adult because you can't necessarily treat it yourself, you can partner with uh, an interdisciplinary team to help you in that regard. I'll paraphrase, 
I'll paraphrase Dickens to say, is the best of time and the worst of time. Is the best of time for rheumatology because we have so many incredible treatments and we never had that spectrum of, of, of uh, uh, possibilities and, and options. Is the worst of time because of the growing and the pressure that it has on our practice and, and, and the aging population. But boy, rheumatologists are smartest people I know and we, we can do it. And um, uh, the interdisciplinary approach is, is probably the best way to go. And rheumatologists are good at that. This is why we have two organizations coming into one. We are used to working with Ally Health. So we, we are in a good position, but we just need that little bit of help uh, to, to move us forward, so. Well, thank you. And go visit the community hub for, for geriatrics and for aging. I think it's just such an incredible community that you all have, and we all should be a part of this as well. So this is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now, and I really appreciate both of you attending. Uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm at KDow2011, or also known as the Dow Index. Hi, this is Dr. Artie Kavanaugh coming to you from ACR Convergence 2021. On behalf of Room Now, it's getting close to the end of the meeting, but there's still a lot of activity going on. Today, there was a session that was, I think, widely viewed, and judging by the number of questions that were asked, I think it's got to be one of the most popular sessions at the whole meeting. That was the FDA session, where the FDA kindly has some of its officers come by to talk about important new developments in rheumatology. So they had three of the officers come by. Uh, and it was very interesting. They talked about uh, new approvals of which there have been several, notably for lupus, vocalisporin, and also anifrolumab. And these are so new that we're sort of still sorting out how we will use these medications in our lupus patients. Where will they fit into the treatment algorithm? Also Avacabin, and they had a very nice discussion about the pros and cons of the approval and ended up being approved for ankh-associated vasculitis. And again, it's so new that we're really waiting to see, I think, and get experience with this medication to learn how to use it best for our populations. And talked about uh, also about uh, new indications for established drug and particularly belimumab for lupus nephritis. So lupus what a busy year in terms of the uh, the FDA. So I think we've been using Blimab, but with the great data from the the, the Bliss LN study, they um, it looked solid. So I think we're using this more, and it has the approval. And then others, the IL one inhibitors, Anakinra and Rolanosep were approved for the DIRA, the relatively uncommon genetic autoinflammatory disease. And Rolanosept is approved for pericarditis, which I think a lot of us have already had the opportunity to use in the clinic. Tocilizumab was approved for scleroderma interstitial lung disease, IVIG to 10% preparation for pneumatomyositis. And also there, the agency gave emergency use authorization for our drug, baricitinib and tocilizumab for COVID. I think the most attention though was uh, gained by the presentation on the jackanibs and particularly with the recent data from oral surveillance, the 1133 study. And I think the FDA gave a, a very nice presentation, historical presentation about how things have rolled out, particularly with tofacitinib, but also with the other jackanibs, with baricitinib and with the upadacitinib and talked about the 
uh, ongoing baricitinib study and talked about some of the changes to the package insert. So um, I would certainly encourage anybody who uh, has an interest in this, which I think is many people who didn't get to the session, definitely check that session out. And there certainly safety is crucially important to all of us as we take care for our patients uh, and take care of our patients. And of course, we one of the most important things we get from meetings such as ACR is important new up-to-date data, including safety information. So uh, it's been an exciting meeting. Thank you for watching on Room Now, and we will see you down the road a little bit on Room Now. This is Dr. Artie Kavanaugh, University of California, San Diego. Hello, everyone. Welcome to At Room Now, and we are the TNF group who are uh, so excited about the ongoing ACR 2021 convergence meeting. So I have with me, I'm Janet Pope. I have uh, Eric and David with me, and I think you can introduce yourselves with your handle because people want to follow your tweets. So, Eric? Yes, I'm Eric Dine. I'm a rheumatologist in uh, Summit, New Jersey. You can find me at Eric Dine, MD. Excellent. David Lou, yeah. Yep, David Lou from Melbourne, Australia, and uh, Dr. David Lou. So, yeah, get on, get on the Twitter. It's a good thing. It is, you can learn a lot. So <laughs> let's hear, um, I guess, Eric, do you wanna tell me about a highlight today on the TNF uh, scene? Sure, I was gonna talk about abstract 1251. So this was looking at, you know, the big question is always, can we anticipate who's gonna to respond to therapies? Is there any biomarkers out there? Um, one thing that, that they looked at today in, in that abstract is, um, can we use BAT, so serum B cell activating factor? We hear about it a lot in the in the lupus literature, but uh, can it can it predict a response to TNF inhibition in patients with RA? So they looked at 158 patients with rheumatoid arthritis initiating their first TNF inhibitor. It was a six month study. They only looked at them at baseline and at six months. Compared the DAS 28 levels at those two time points, as well as uh, measuring serum BAT levels at those times. Uh, they found only 24% of patients had what was considered a good uh, ULAR clinical response uh, at the six-month point. Patients that were more likely to respond had lower BMIs, lower baseline DAS 28s, and yes, they had lower serum DAS. What's a little interesting is they then broke it down by seropositivity. Patients that were seropositive ACPA patients had a good response when they had lower serum DAS concentration compared with those that did not respond. When they looked at uh, the seronegative ACPA patients, they did not see that differentiation. So they, they did a, a bunch more analysis, you know, um, looking at the seropositive patients, they, they found a threshold level um, in seropositivity that is under a thousand picograms per milliliter at six months, then, then that's probably a, a good response they thought for the bath. And they came up with positive predictive value being pretty good at 89% and negative predictive value being only 35%. So it's showing that if you have that low uh, serum bath and you're seropositive, the implication is that it's uh, a good predictive test that you will respond to TNF inhibition. You know, exactly what that means as a biomarker, you know, how well can that be used? What, what's the different noise in there of, of the differences between the groups? I think there's a lot more to learn here, but I think it's I never heard of BAF being used in this context. I, I think it's something that is, is certainly interesting. Interesting, probably not yet ready for prime time, but in, um, we don't think of BAF signaling, although 
technically rituximab, although it's more B cell depleting, uh, BAF, April, Bliss, um, some of the signaling pathway might or might not be altered with rituximab. So I guess it kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, hard to say though, wait, time will tell. Yep. Uh, David, what about you today? What, what caught your eye? I don't want to sound too much like a broken record with this, but I know that I've talked about the um, TOFA versus uh, TNF inhibitors in oral surveillance, TOFA versus TNF inhibitors in core avatars. But um, today there was um, Canadian data um, from uh, two um, registries combined, um, one from Ontario, one from Quebec, uh, looking once again um, at that uh, at how uh, drug survival performed in both tofacitinib and TNF inhibitors. And what do you know? Once again, very similar, um, similar um, uh, performance. And actually, it, it did occur to me as well that it's probably um, it probably mirrors once again the, uh, the jackpot study that was uh, looked at today as well, uh, which looked at patients going from jack that who were already on jack inhibitors and going either to a jack inhibitor or biologic DMARD. and once again, very similar performance. So I think fundamentally, we've just got some very um, well, that all of our very good rheumatoid arthritis drugs um, perform very similarly. And uh, I'll keep on saying it until people get sick of me saying it. Well, it's good to say it. And I mean, with biosimilars, access uh, due to cost is even probably better in many countries than it used to be. Um, the Jack to Jack study that was 1442, I was actually surprised because I tend to think of if something isn't working, whether most things are secondary loss of effects, sometimes primary failure uncommon, or sometimes due to side effects, less common than secondary loss of effect. I kind of thought jack to other mechanism might do better than jack to jack. And you're right, it did show the jackpot study at least um, adjusting for country level and things like that. They didn't adjust for all confounders yet. It seemed that jack to jack did just as well as a jack to other going to a biodemart. So Time will tell on that. Um, I have one study to round it out. Maybe I'll get your opinion. So um, uh, Dr. Solomon and his group um, looked at 18 clinics, 45 healthcare professionals. It was abstract 1448. And it was treating to a target in the virtual world and saying that treating to a target, whether you were virtual or in person, in person did a bit better on treating to a target. And the only reason I'm bringing it up on TNF because a lot of the background biologics were TNFs, uh, I would imagine, in groups of just cross-sectional practices, right? So what they found was that mostly you could treat to a target either way. Of course, in person, it could be easier. So um, David, do you have an opinion on whether you're treating to a target or not when you're doing your virtual visits? I'm pretty sure I'm not treating to target. And um, we should, I, I know this is something that we've all, we all need to work on. I spoke in, a, in, in another video the other day about how, um, well, Dan Solomon's collective had actually been working on trying to improve what we do in terms of treat to target in general. Um, that I think coaching ourselves and having kind of supporting ourselves to do that better um, helps. Uh, I, I think it's the kind of thing which I've probably let slip a bit in this, in through virtual care. Um, and it does worry me a little bit because um, I'm not, uh, for those times when I'm not palpating joints. And even, even if we can get a lot of a sense from uh, virtual care as to the direction that um, patients are going, whether they're getting worse or getting better, and when we're getting better at being able to detect disease activity, the context of, of telemedicine, 
there's still nothing quite like um, actually palpating joints and detecting stone biters. Yep. Eric, would you feel the same way? Yeah, I think it's it definitely been a little bit of a perspective shift that it started with, okay, this is just temporary and we don't need our targets. And then as the pandemic went on, I think we've had to do a change of mindset. I, I think this gets back to some of the, the research from the, the CATCH um, studies where they do the patient seed eyes. And those are encouraging that it may not be the ideal target, but they're, they're pretty good targets and they give us something objective to go with. And it shows that when a patient reports their seed eye and they count how many swollen and tender joints they, they report, um, and you use that with a physician and patient globals, as long as you're not on the extremes, um, they're, they're pretty good. You know, when, when a patient is, says they're not doing well or they say they're doing excellent, sometimes there's some variation, but those are the patients you may want to see anyway. But, but the patients in the middle, they're usually pretty good at, at reporting what's going on or not. So I think it's giving you something objective to work on. Time consuming though, for sure. We've, we've changed our teleforms uh, for telemedicine that say the patient's disease state is remission, low, medium, or high. And we're just ticking it by the sense we get. But obviously um, I look forward to the day that you can get the visual cues, but the palpation is really important. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's a good wrap for today at Room Now. Our TNF group is rocking and rolling and please follow all of us at Room Now. Thank you. Thanks, Janet. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. Hi, this is Eric Dine from Room Now and, and from uh, Summit, New Jersey, coming at you after day three of ACR 2021 Convergence. It's been a, a great uh, session thus far and, and lots of great content today. Uh, I think one of the highlights was certainly uh, a presentation called Gift of Gab. And we have with us uh, the two stars from that, uh, the moderator, uh, Dr. Jason Leibowitz, and uh, the star of it, the, the speaker, Janet Zaidi, uh, who's from Warden, who gave an excellent talk about communication. Um, so thank you so much. What, what, a great, uh, what a great session you guys led today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, so I wanted to start with, with Jason, Tell me a little bit about, you know, how the session came to be, what, what made you want to do this? Yeah, so we were very lucky to snag Professor Zaidi. Um, as uh, clinicians, as researchers, as medical educators, I think we all have many opportunities to participate in public speaking, communication, whether that's one-on-one -on -one through feedback or small group teaching. Um, it's something that's expected of most clinicians and doctors and researchers, but most of us don't have any formal training uh, in how to be an effective public speaker or how to give effective feedback and communication. So the idea for this session was to bring uh, an expert on the topic like Professor Zaidi, who teaches uh, in the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania in the communications program, to talk about what are some of the um, practical tips that can be used to be uh, develop your skills as a, a, an effective public speaker. Um, so the session uh, really revolved around a quite ingenious acronym ROOM that uh, Professor Zaidi can talk about, um, which the audience will be able to use to remember some key tips that she imparted. Uh, and then it was a very lively Q&A session um, with questions from the audience uh, that they had about uh, effective communication. 
Yeah, I knew RIM was definitely an acronym that, that was definitely made for this occasion because I don't think it's one that they usually teach in, in Oregon. Can you, can you tell us what that stands for? Absolutely. So R is remember your purpose, meaning are you speaking in, to inform your audience or are you trying to persuade your audience? Also know specifically what you want to accomplish with your presentation. Number two is H, have knowledge about your audience. It's so important to target your audience and relate to them. So you can know things about them in advance, maybe their generation, because now we say generation rather than age group, their education, their interests, their gender if possible, whatever you can find out about your audience in advance will really help you because you wanna decenter yourself and think about your audience and what they need to hear and want to hear. Number three is E, engage your audience. So besides what I just said about knowing your audience and saying things and speaking in a way that will help them relate to you, you also need to start strong and end strong because everyone has a lot of things going on these days and they're being pulled for their attention. So I can't guarantee they will only focus on you, but if you start strong and engage your audience with something interesting rather than today I'm gonna to tell you about, which is very boring and never say again, uh, and also end strong, leave them with something memorable. So as they either physically leave the room or shut off their Zoom, they have something that they can take away and remember about your presentation. You is unlimited practice. There's no easy way around it. The more you practice, the better you'll be able to say the words, the better you'll be able to recall what you want to say, as well as have more confidence. And finally, M, make it memorable. As I said, end strong with something that hopefully will even round off and come back to what you started with. I, I, I thought that was great. And I, I really liked that the talk, you know, was both about how to give large presentations as well as the one-on-one -on -one patient interaction. Um, when you talk about having knowledge of your, your audience, how do you tailor it to, is it the same talk that you give in a big group versus, versus a one-on-one -on -one interaction? Well, so that goes along with knowing your audience. What level of formality? If your audience is a, also a lay audience or are they educated in your field of medicine? So you wanna have, make sure that even if it's the same topic, you have to tailor it specifically to that audience. As I said in my presentation, and I'll repeat, you don't want to talk about medical terms to a lay audience. Please don't tell us how to do the operation. <laughs> I don't want to hear about it. I'm squeamish. But if you tell me something that I can relate to, add to information that I already know, that will help me. But you don't want to talk down to a professional audience because they won't listen to you and you'll have a little less credibility. So you really do have to even if it's the same topic, the same presentation, 
you do have to make sure it's appropriate wording-wise, delivery-wise, content-wise to your audience. I, I think when it comes to making it memorable, I think that the one thing that I, I'm gonna remember from, from your talk is what to do when you're giving public speaking and that you're not supposed to picture the audience naked, but you had a very interesting <laughs> advice that I learned. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, about that? Yes, so really it's a worldwide phenomenon. People would rather die than give a three minute speech and or risk extreme physical danger. And I do have a perfect record. No one's ever died in any of my classes. They cry, they carry on. They don't wanna give a speech. Even if it's to people they know, their peers, even if it's topics that they are very comfortable with. So how to get around that, what we call stage fright. The best thing to do is to take a deep breath and understand that your audience usually is going to be kind to you and be happy that, first of all, you're the one who's up there speaking and not them. And also you have to get a little a rid of that little bit of adrenaline that you have. Use it for energy and enthusiasm, but also burn up some of it. So besides taking a nice deep breath, if you can make a large gesture, maybe to your slides, if that's appropriate, but when all else fails, wiggle your toes in your shoes, burn up some of that adrenaline. You start that way, you'll forget that you're nervous and you'll forget that you're wiggling your toes and everything will go smoothly. And I have had a lot of students over the years tell me that in fact that works. I, I like that, I like, you gave the analogy of, of the duck moving its feet under the water and looking calm on the surface. I, I, I think I'm gonna keep that one and remember that for a long time. That was really helpful. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> um, I, I think that it was definitely a great session all in all. It, there's a lot of information in there. Um, I thought there were, you know, you, you touched on um, what to do with persuasion and, you know, in the big theme of this, you know, conference is about vaccine hesitancy and, and you know, there's always concerns in rheumatology about compliance and, and behavior changes. And I think there's a lot of great information in there. Um, so I definitely recommend that everyone check out the, the talk and poll and there's just um, a lot of pearls in there. Hey, thank you so much. Awesome. Uh, it was really wonderful to have Professor Janet Zaidi and Dr. Jason Leibowitz. Thank you so much for the time today and for the session earlier. And for lots more information, I encourage everyone to go uh, on Room now for, for all of our information. Thank you so much for having us.